All right, this is going to be a shorter one this week. We're not, we're not going to be here all night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember when we first started, it used to seem like such a daunting task to fill up, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. What, you know, in season one, how the, the bulk of it was the, the guest interview. interview. Yep. It, seemed, it used to seem like such a big task to fill up that first 15 minutes of it now. And these days, by the time we get through, I look at the ticker. We've been in it for two hours and I got to. <laughs> Clip something and cut something out. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, hello, everyone. We're going to uh, take a downbeat this week from someone who the music world is still mourning a tremendous loss, not only in the music world, but specifically in the black music world. I'm talking about the now late great maestro Michael Morgan. A lot of people are saying a lot of things, um, you know, recalling different memories. We're going to spend a bit of time uh, honoring uh, maestro Michael Morgan on this opus. You took a look at his TED talk, That's you right. said, and we're going to get into that uh, in a little bit. But to get us started here, I'm going to, um, we're going to hear a little bit of what Maestro Michael Morgan had to say on a documentary called For the Love of Music. Let's take a listen. You realize immediately when you meet him that the story is more complicated than you're getting just by watching your television. There's a more complicated person here. And so uh, I met with him after that, and all he wanted to talk about was. Uh, classical music. This is what he. This was his real passion. Because he, he obviously he really wanted a chance to talk about music, and it was wonderful. Later on, he he um, put forward the idea that for his 60th birthday, he wanted to play the Mandelson Violin Concerto uh, because he'd been practicing it, and also uh, as an example to the next generation, uh, to the very young, how important he feels it is to study music. So, of course, in that clip, Scott, Maestro Michael Morgan is talking about whom? Um, he's talking about Farrakhan. Okay. I wanted to start here because Maestro Michael Morgan was in many ways a trailblazer, someone who really actually believed in shaking things up for the sake of broadening the spectrum and getting new audiences and new perspectives into the concert hall. When we talked about Farrakhan on this podcast, Scott, I mean, people all but tried to fry me alive. I mean, I lost friendships over over the feature and all sorts of things. And we were at the Sphinx conference and a guy wanted to pull you aside and sort of uh, it, right. deconstruct that conversation. It, it, was, it, it was a thing. Yeah. It was really a thing for people. When we talk about Michael Morgan and all of his trailblazerness in the way that he really just pushed the envelope again for the sake of Western classical music. We really have to look at all of it and really consider what it means to blaze a trail and to be at the very front. Many people, many, many people have told the story about um, Minister Louis Farrakhan's violin playing and, and, and all of that sort of thing, you know, in retrospect. But Michael Morgan was out here on the front lines. Can you imagine there was an email back then, but could you imagine the voicemails or the letters he got in the mail or the conversations people wanted to put on him? I mean, sure. th th that is bravery. That is really standing out front. But he also was, uh, you know, very quick to highlight in that clip that you played. There's more going on here than whatever image that you have in your exactly. head. There's more going on behind the scenes. Exactly. So I respect that. Yeah. And look and look at what we got from it. Not only did more people learn about 
Beethoven, you know, more of Farrakhan's followers learn about Beethoven. Musicians learn that Farrakhan was a violinist. There was community built. Farrakhan's coach throughout the whole process, if you look at that uh, documentary, was a Jewish woman. Um, Carol Jones, Caroline Jones, who we had on uh, Triloquy to talk about it, who was there, the mm-hmm, the uh, mm-hmm. stage manager, the personnel manager for that uh, concert. Shout out to Caroline. Diva is as Diva does Jones. <laughs> Let me give her a dramatic boom. Period. Um, you know, she talked about the different communities and folks coming in and just being in, in that moment. And we, you know, talking about making music uh, bring people together, music being that catalyst. We say that in jest and, you know, in hope so often, but this was really that. So if y'all don't understand or learn anything about Michael Morgan, I want y'all to understand that this man was really a trailblazer. He really demonstrated fearlessness. Fearlessness is you know, seldom celebrated in the moment because fearlessness in the moment is a little against the grain, but that was not something that Michael Morgan was concerned with. So I really want to make sure that I started off just highlighting that as an example of his fearlessness, rest in power to Michael Morgan. We're going to get into him and um, many other of his uh, trailblazing, just fearless moments in this opus. But uh, let's go ahead and get started. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 113. Thank you, everyone, for coming along and joining us for this 113th Opus of the Triloquy Podcast. To returning listeners, thank you so much for your continued support. We aren't going to talk about it you know, uh, on, on this opus, but I was sharing some statistics with you yesterday and right. Triloquy is really growing and is really up there. I'm so humbled by the audience, by where we sit in the general podcast ecosystem, much less the music podcast ecosystem. And then moreover, the, you know, decolonizing classical music spaces, so-called classical music spaces, part of the podcast ecosystem. So thank you so much for your continued support. We owe y'all everything to the new listeners. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and contextualizes it for today. We make sure that that phrase applies to all classic music, especially the classic musical traditions of the United States that cover black music. Um, we've, we've talked about country and gospel and hip hop and, you know, even some of that orchestral music that we think of when we use that phrase classical music. It's an important part of what we talk about here. We just frame it in a different way and a way that uh, we think is most equitable and most forward leaning for the future future of the genre. So thank you for joining us. You can get more information on this show at Triloquy.org. Be sure to hit that donate button and support the Triloquy podcast. Uh, Triloquy, in addition to your support, listener support is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds people who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. You can find out more information on them at ShuttleworthFoundation.org. I also this week want to thank Urban Roots for supporting Triloquy by having me on their career panel. Scott talking to the kids about all the different career paths that you can go in if you just think outside of the box. It's sort of 
you know, interesting to see what kids latch on to when I talk about this specific work. Mm-hmm. Some of them are really there and 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 really get it. So I I, I think you know, in, in 20, 30 years, we're going to have, you know, folks my age, folks your age, who have a different view on that phrase, classical music. Let's so hope. it's really exciting. Let's hope. You said you were talking to the kids. What was the age range? Uh, high school. Oh, high okay. school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, shout out to Urban Roots. Since 1997, Urban Roots has provided paid internships to youth on the east side of St. Paul toward their, toward their vision of a world where all communities have unlimited access to nature and healthy food. More information on Urban Urban Roots at urbanrootsmn.org. And I also uh, just to round out these announcements here, I want to hu- send a huge shout out and thank you to Heather Trussell at Soulsville Charter School. I had the pleasure of talking with those kids, that high school group last week, about the connections between African griots and contemporary hip hop. So a classic um, African, a, a classic motherland tradition, East African musical tradition, and how that connects to uh, modern day hip hop. So uh, thank you so much to Heather Trussell, Heather down there in her orchestra and music appreciation classes at Soulsville Charter School. Uh, she's demolishing the ideas specifically around that phrase world music, as we've talked about here on Triloquy, yeah. as well as decolonizing classical music. So a huge thank you to Heather Trussell. I want to just send a general shout out before we get started. I'm going to send a sharp Scott to all the teachers because it's something. Stress, I could not imagine. The teachers and the parents. As I read social media and some of the news headlines, you know, of course, we're talking about the Delta variant and everything. It's rough out there. So shout out to the teachers. Y'all are doing the real work. Y'all are doing the most important work there is. The older I get and the more I dig into this work that we do and learn about the history that we've been taught incorrectly, a teacher's job is pivotal. Pivotal. So shout out to all the teachers and to all the parents as we get into Movement One. So as we started, I want to send a sharp up for the now late great Michael Morgan. The news came in late last week. I heard uh, this is Monday right now as we're taping this. I heard late Friday evening. I, ha- I got a couple texts. I was actually involved in a video project with maestro Michael Morgan that hasn't yet come out. So those folks uh, were sure to reach out and I saw a couple headlines. I saw that uh, Michael Morgan had been hospitalized for the last couple weeks, uh, complications with um, a, a kidney transplant as, as I've seen in uh, on different news uh, cycles. So we're going to spend a little time today talking about Michael Morgan. So, um, you know, my first interactions with Maestro Michael Morgan were uh, with the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra. We're going to hear a little bit uh, of that uh, concert, uh, an excerpt from that concert later. But just getting to know him and doing panels with Michael Morgan, I learned that um, he got a start in D.C. He's from Washington, D.C., and talked about how he quickly got involved with the youth string programs. Right. Right. And just wanted to conduct from right off the bat. So, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the very beginnings, this is someone who really had the ear and the ego <laughs> in a good way sure. to really stand in front of a group and create 
the 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 uh, musical images of his mind. Of course, uh, before he passed away, uh, Michael Morgan was the honored music director of the Oakland East Bay Symphony, and you know some of the things that he was doing over there were really incredible. I've I've never been to um, the San Francisco area. Have you Have you spent much time yep. there? Yep. Well, what I understand, and maybe you can help me out here, is that you have San Francisco, and then you have Oakland, which is like the grittier, more right. you know, close to the ground. Do, do I kind of have that have that right? Yep. In? That's the vibe. Yeah. Yep. So you know, his. It's usually a little cheaper to live over there in Oakland. Sure. Too. It's sort of like New York, Jersey. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that Oakland is Jersey at all. Sure. I'm not. <laughs> sure. I'm just saying it's the proximity sort of thing. That idea. Yeah. Of crossing a bridge or something to get to another. Yeah. Little yeah. area. So to that, Michael Morgan really wanted the sound of the orchestra to be reminiscent of that. You know, something that really spoke to the community. One of the things that I really. Uh, honored him for was his dedication to really speaking to the folks there on the ground in that community. And um, as a national, nationally syndicated radio host, you know, I think you can speak to the challenges and the, you know, the dance between programming and speaking to a local audience and a national one. That's and, a tight rope you know, to walk. But, yeah. but but he just he refused to do that. He really focused in on the the local. What what are your you know when when it comes to programming and uh you know so called classical music and all that sort of thing, what are what are some of the benefits or maybe some of the challenges in this global internet world of really focusing in on the community? Do you think that makes um, a classical music programmer's job harder, easier? What are your thoughts on really focusing focusing in locally? Yeah, not having held that actual title and done the job, except for like when I was doing the morning show and I had to program my own pieces. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm going to say here is largely theory. Sure. Right? But for a long time, I preached against networks. Mm -hmm. The evils of networks. Sure. Because you lose the localism. Yeah. And that is one of the things that really attracted me to public radio in the first place was the fact that, you know, it was like community theater. You're there in it speaking to that community. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it can be very, it can be a very powerful tool, which um, Michael Morgan t uh, laid out in his TED talk that I listened to a couple times. Yeah. Uh, when I think about, really speaking to a local audience. Again, we were talking about San Francisco versus Oakland, the differences therein. So speaking specifically to Oakland folks, he believed in keeping things a little weird. And that's a phrase that, you know, I'm not just pulling out. I've, I've heard him say, you know, keeping things a little weird. His other big affirmation in programming was that everybody isn't gonna like everything. And that's okay. Now, I know that sometimes we try to, you know, make as many people sort of vibe with the different programming and the different ideas that we have mm -hmm, uh, with mm -hmm. with uh, orchestral music, Western classical music. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. The idea, you know, this idea that Michael Morgan lived by that everything, everybody isn't going to like everything and you just have to deal with that. Do you do, is that an easy sort of mantra to to take on and accept when you're when you're putting things together or making presentations? That's a great question. Um it, it's hard to keep that in mind when you're trying to please a big group of people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Especially one that isn't focused locally, right? Yeah. And um it, it seems like any little bit of pushback uh is immediately pacified by okay, okay, well then here comes Bach. Yeah. Then you yeah. Know, just 
Well, wait, wait a few minutes. And and Maestro Morgan was not afraid of the pushback. We talked about, you know, again, in the very opening, his uh, connections and affirmation of violinist Louis Farrakhan. But I was uh, also uh, sent lots of tweets and other little uh, anecdotes about Michael Morgan. I wanted to share one here that Cheryl Duvall sent me via Twitter. Uh, it's uh, two tweets. So I'm, I'm reading here from DTO 510. It says, not long after I finished college, I went to see the Oakland Symphony perform with DJ Shadow. A good chunk of the audience walked out as the turntable is jammed with the orchestra. Michael Morgan always pushed boundaries and blew minds. That's some image of being on the stage, conducting an orchestra. You have this DJ scratching happening and folks are walking out. You have to have some some mm-mm's. Where's my Where's my the little, grapes? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm losing my I'm losing my soundboard. You know that's one of the uh, that is one of the things that he talked about he, when he brought that up in there. <laughs> the, you have to have um, the mm-mm's to go ahead. Go ahead. No, when he, one of the things that he talked about in in that TED talk was um, they were the first to do that live mm-hmm. with a DJ and an orchestra, and he spoke about it with pride. He didn't talk about anybody walking out. He talked about how cool it was that they did it. Yeah, yeah. One of the quote tweets to the tweet I just read say, um, you know, someone else reminiscing, uh, uh, they say, I remember this show. I'm sure I was much more interested in DJ Shadow than in the symphony. And that is how Michael Morgan pulled in new audiences without fear of ruffling the feathers of season ticket holders. I mean, that is that is so powerful to me. Because we have somebody who not only wasn't really interested in the symphony and happened to come in there, someone who knows who we're talking about because Michael Morgan touched so many individuals through his fearlessness of programming differently. I mean, it's 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 so powerful. I wish more music directors were, you know, really willing to push the needle and speak to local audiences in that way. You know, the Gateways Festival Orchestra, we're all, you know, excited uh, for this April to uh, be in uh, Carnegie, to be in New York, and Michael Morgan was supposed to conduct that show. So mm. whoever is selected to uh, replace him, that that's going to that's really going to be a powerful moment. That's an important decision. It's a decision I'm glad I don't have to make. Uh, but why yeah. isn't his name more widely known? Yeah, see, that's a hard question for me to answer because I, I know his name more than I know any other conductors. I mean, you know, right. I, I can I can spew off a few names, but throughout my professional career, Michael Morgan's name is a name we've known. He, from my perspective, he's very widely known, well, and I'm not just saying that. You know, it's. Is the the real deal from my perspective? Maybe yeah, maybe that's my fault. the The first time that I ran across his name was the recording of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with Farrakhan. With Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just saying it's a shame that more people don't know his story, because perhaps his ideas and his methods would be out there. And more popular as well. Well, is that not the story of all artists? You know, you're, you know, like Drake said, you, you know, when I die, I'm a legend. It's, it's after you pass that we really know and, right. and celebrate these people. Yeah. But even so, Scott, I mean, you say that, and now everyone is going to know. More people are going to know more of the legacy of Maestro Michael Morgan. How many of these music directors at these orchestras do you think are ready to put a a, a, a turntable uh, on the stage? Despite that, that, that's what I'm saying. But do you get my point? I do. You get my point. That's the level of fearlessness, fearlessness, even in death. 
the way that uh, folks will honor, you know, the, the greats as they pass away, that is still a little far. That's still a little far reach for a lot of these folks, certainly radio programmers. And Michael Morgan was there years ago mm -hmm. years ago so um I, I, i'm gonna let you talk a little bit about uh, the ted talk of maestro michael morgan's you watch but just to um transition out of my little part of this i wanted to actually uh give some some airtime to dj shadow so this is actually um an artist that i'm not all that familiar with i did take a a quick listen through uh, a lot of the tracks and the one that i thought would be good to um you know send up with michael morgan is one called what does your soul look like i was listening to this and i could really hear what it might be like to put this with uh, a Western orchestra, an orchestra like the um, the the Oakland East Bay Symphony. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this track in particular was on the program, but I can definitely hear it. So I, I wanted to share a little bit of this. Again, this is DJ Shadow, a track called What Does Your Soul Look Like? to those classic American traditions of, I don't know, some blues there, maybe a little funk sound with that bass, the way that's happening. Totally 60s, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful music and music that more people knew about thanks to the programming and fearlessness of the late maestro Michael Morgan. All right, well, um, you, you mentioned a couple times uh, a, a TED Talk that you watched from, um, from Michael Morgan. How, how about you? Well, well first of all, sure. how did you get there? Uh, looking for his recordings mm -hmm. so that I could, you know, listen to his work. Sure. Uh, since it was announced, what was it, Saturday or Friday night? I, I think it was Friday night. So I was, I spent a couple days trying to find it. And you said that there are recordings out there. It's just, a, I didn't find any of them sure. on Spotify. So I, I've been jumping over to YouTube more and more frequently now. Mm -hmm. And the TED Talk came up and I thought, well, then let's get it in, let's get his story in his words. Right? Sure, sure. And so I'm not, I don't want to spend, you know, a lot of time talking about what he said because he does it just fine. But what I got from it, um, he talked about the role of the conductor first, and when you go to the dictionary, like the fourth or the fifth one down, is a lightning rod. A conductor mm. is a lightning rod. And so he sort of started to look at himself in that way to sort of attract attention. And one of the first bits of advice that he got was, if you can turn around and talk to the audience just as you are talking to your friends, mm -hmm. they're going to really identify with you. They're going to uh, bond. Right. And, and think about how that concept spreads even right. beyond being a conductor. We talk about that in radio right. all the time, really so having that rapport. That is exactly what he did in this TED Talk. He just spoke so plainly and so simply that, you know, 20 minutes goes by and you don't even know that you were listening. But he was an assistant in St. Louis, an assistant in Chicago, and both of those he was working on like outreach and trying to improve the relationship between the black community and whatever the orchestra was. Yeah. By the time he's out in Oakland, that his 
job in Oakland reminded me of like what the East West Divan Orchestra does. You know, they sure. got all yeah, of those yeah, middle Divan Orchestra. Is mm-hmm. it okay? Thanks. Um, so he talked about putting together programs where you get the Beethoven fans in with the people who are thirsty for that new sound. Yeah, me. Mm-hmm. And you're doing the classic stuff along with mu- musicians who are playing instruments from Lebanon, from yeah. China, you know, and and they would be on stage and all presented together. Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with me because we had a very similar philosophy when we started the Shelter Belt Theater in Omaha back in 1994. Yeah. This idea of... of uh, having a regard for the classic stance where you came from, but also an appreciation for the new and sort of melding those two things together. And he talked about putting together programs that I think would speak to uh, the the fans, the, the, the hardcore uh, yep. Beethovens that have been here for a while, mm-hmm. and the new set. But really the, the uh, quote that he came up with uh, that I really tapped into was, the orchestra can be a means of creating community. And it feels like right now in this time that that is something that we need. And, yep. you know, like Joe Para, I was watching a Joe Para episode and he asked some little kid in his class, do you think we're one electric grid away from turning on each other? Sure. And, and I hope not. And so I'd like for you to, if you could play that little uh, clip. I program things that cause people to come and sit together, that put a variety of things on the same program, then I can bring people together and start to create a community. And that's, to my mind, the first thing I've got to do if I'm going to make Oakland a better place. And if I'm not going to make Oakland a better place, why am I running an orchestra there? Yeah, why am I doing it? Anywhere if you're not trying to make a better place. So once you've got people together and you're sitting watching a concert or whatever together, you get to know each other, you see your common humanity, you see the strength you have in numbers. So I started looking around at our concerts and going, who is not here? Now, Oakland East Bay Symphony concerts were already more uh, diverse, the audience was already more diverse than a lot of symphony orchestras, but still not as diverse as Oakland. And so what was born out of that, uh, looking around and going, who's not here? was a series of concerts we call Notes From. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll concert, post that and, and y'all can look at the rest of that. But from. think about the importance, the obviousness, the importance, the obviousness, and the scarcity of that question in art spaces. Who is not here? Mm-hmm. Who is not here? There are so many examples that I can pull of where I see representation, manifestation of that question just not being asked. Right. Okay. Right. So, you know, again, when we talk about the fearlessness of Michael Morgan, we're, we're thinking about the simplicity of thought that leads to great impact. I mean, the, the fact that the Oakland East Bay Symphony, as he said there in that clip, was all the audience was already more diverse than most of them. Right. But still not as diverse as the city is. So it's always looking beyond, always trying to stretch and do something more that I, that I think he, he really captured in a unique way as a conductor. Plain talk, great ideas. And that is why I asked you, how come his name isn't more widely known? Why? Again, it's hard for me to say that because he's. I, I never saw him as obscure or or not 
widely known. I mean, you you can't go, you haven't been able to go on the internet all weekend and not see his name, not not see his story somewhere. So what you're telling me is that his name is not regular in other classical music spaces that's or, or, or other music spaces you mm-hmm. know that's fair. and and i'm not trying to i'm, I'm gonna keep a positive here i'm not gonna, <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna get shady but yeah but you know. understand the point i, I do my, my point okay um an incredible man in anything else on that uh on that ted talk that you wanted to share or or, or that you know really struck a chord with you we, we didn't give that uh your sharp i'll go ahead and do yeah. that here yeah that is my sharp um like i said i I don't want to speak for the man. He yeah. did. A, he did a great job with it, and uh, I think that that is something that should be required listening as we go forward and have uh, orchestras planning out their seasons. The such. orchestra as a means of creating community. I and mean, don't don't we need some of that right about now? We definitely need some of that. Think about how incredible it would be, you know, to be in that sort of orchestral setting. Every, with your mask on i'll get we'll get to that later uh but you know really hearing sounds that everybody can vibe with and not only that everyone can vibe with but that sound like the local community the challenge as we move forward is that even within our geographic communities we're so splintered we're mm-hmm. so dissected yeah. that you know the the musical tastes and even the the values are are very very different so you know but but with those challenges we've seen that uh, there, there can be some headway there. And Michael Morgan most certainly, you know, fearlessly not only sought after that, but achieved that mm. in so many ways. Well, um, we, we do have one more accidental here in this first, for, uh, first movement. But to get us um, into that final accidental, Scott, I wanted to share an excerpt from, you know, what I think is one of the most legendary of Michael Morgan performances, certainly in my time. So uh, back in uh, 2017, I had the pleasure of playing with the Gateways Festival Orchestra. This is in uh, Rochester, New York for folks who don't know. And there's actually a really phenomenal Michael Morgan tribute over there on that website. I'll, I'll have that linked. But on the final concert, one of the pieces featured was uh, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto um, featuring Stuart Goodyear, you know, um, a pianist who, you know, everyone knows and loves. Yep. And actually during that concert, sometime I believe it was this in the middle of the second movement, a little tussle broke out in the audience. Like some kids were acting up and we actually had to stop. I had never done that in my life, but um, Michael, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not <laughs> kidding at all. And it was very tense, like, oh my gosh. So after that was settled, you know, Michael Morgan the whole time is cool and just, you know, doesn't try to, you know, how a lot of people would try to hold it together and sure. ignore what's going on. No, he he stopped and let everything calm down like a real G. And when when the crowd was cleared out and, and whatever was, you know, whoever was tussling was outside, he just very calmly, you know, told the audience where we were starting back up. And the orchestra heard it and we went right back to it. And it's been, you know, of course, spliced together and fixed and all that. Sure. But just what a powerful moment. And then, you know, not to mention you have a, a black soloist. Again, shout out to Stuart Goodyear, Michael Morgan on the stage and all black orchestra, the Gateways Festival Orchestra. I'm looking here at the um, at a still from the concert. You know, I'm looking at um, Lady Jess. I'm, I'm shouting out a, a Triloquy family members. I see Lady Jess here. There go Katie. Uh, 
um, shout out to Classically Black. I'm seeing Jen Arnold. Um, you know, uh, Titus was somewhere on stage. I'm there. It's, it's all kind of folks there just creating this music and being a part of this moment that none of us could speak to or reminisce on if it weren't for the hard work of maestro Michael Morgan. So we're going to listen to just um, a little bit of this as we get to our last accidental. watch that and it challenges me in an interesting way because I very actively made the decision that I cannot spend my time you know much less my life sitting on stage and rehearsing European classical music you know but when I look at that and I just remember the feeling of, you know, being within that community, having communities, um, you know, uh, join together and uh, just, you know, uh, manifesting, you know, so much of our training and, and our first love of Western classical music. It's hard for me not to miss a part of it. But sure. when I think about it, it's the community. It's the moments the people. I'm missing. It's, it's yeah. the people. And goodness gracious, if, if, it, if it weren't for, for, for Michael Morgan. So rest in power to the, to the great, the, 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 late, the late great maestro. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, Scott, this is, uh, this is Triloquy. So we have to give the people, you know. A little bit of mess. A little bit of no. red meat. <laughs> I'm actually not going to give this article, this last article for our uh, first movement, a flat. I'm going to give it a natural because it just it, it's a natural reaction from the uh, philanthropic industrial complex, as it were. I'm reading here from <laughs> Washington City Paper. The headline is Arts Commission Approves New Grant Formula Forge Theater Director not happy let's take a look okay it says Ford's theater director Paul Tetrol uh, excuse me if I'm uh, mispronouncing feels like his good faith has been taken advantage of his willingness to compromise and come together has been disregarded Tetrol expressed those frustrations in an email to several other area arts leaders about the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities new grant distribution formula approved earlier this week the plan spreads the commission's nearly 16.5 million in available public grant funding across arts organizations this year according to their respective budgets. I'll have the rest of that for y'all to check out. But basically, they have decided over there in Washington, D.C. and in the area that if your annual budget is over a million dollars, the pot 
that you have to compete with other large uh, institutions has shrunk. So that smaller nonprofit institutions, and there's still a conversation there, but uh, small nonprofits with annual budgets less than a million dollars, so that, you know they have a, a bigger pot to go after to get their projects funded. And and uh, you know Paul up here at the top of Ford's Theater was a little bit upset at that. Now before. Uh, you know, go. I'm not trying to drag him or nothing. I went over to the Forge Theater website, and if you go and look at, you know, their current and upcoming events, they make sure that they have blackness front and center. Okay, we have Marian Anderson up here on the front stage. They're already advertising for the uh, a Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. and we got you know two black folks here. I've an all black Christmas Carol. How how um, how innovative and original, huh? Because we have never seen anything like that before. The Vanessa Williams or nothing. You, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, I'm saying I have. <laughs> I was I was so, being funny. You know, and you know, anyway, you know, they, they got uh from the mountaintop here for uh, Black History Month in January. So they're obviously paying attention to really providing equity around programs that will really bring in the the, the black folks, especially in a place like Washington, DC. Sure. Okay, so I'm not saying that they aren't doing any work, but is it unfair? to, you know, proverbially cut the legs of arts organizations with these huge budgets for the sake of the smaller organizations. I mean, I, I know that you can't, maybe you can't imagine being at the top of one of these huge theater companies with all of this budget, but, you know, how would, how would you feel as, you know, uh, a, a smaller theater owner, let's say Shelter Bill was in Washington, D.C., would you not be excited to know that your theater company has a greater chance of getting some of this money because there's fewer there's fewer of it from than folks like this to, to you, fight over? You bring up a great point because uh, a lot of these theater groups, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, project this across orchestras and museums yes. and everything, uh, if you have money to spend on a marketing team or a marketing campaign or something like that, uh, somebody who writes grants, mm -hmm. you are going to have a better shot at getting those big grants, right? Yeah. So a, shoe, a, a company working on a shoestring budget, you know, somebody who's putting together press releases and, and promo packs uh, at midnight on a Saturday because that's where they have the time, they're going to be jumping for joy to have the opportunity to get, you know, bigger game, you know, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, a, another quote uh, I wanted to read here. Um, this is uh, it says, I believe all of D.C.'s arts and humanities communities should take notice of how the NCAC under Paul Titrault's leadership poses a threat to the hard won independence of the district's arts agency. So. I, I think that is this is this is juicy. This mm. is juicy. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there is so much to be said about folks who are willing to do the work, but not go a little further. And again, you know, we we're the, we're sub theming this and dedicating this to Michael Morgan when I talked about how the uh, East Bay Oakland, so the Oakland East Bay Symphony was uh, the audience was diverse, but not as diverse as it could be. You know, we have to think about that and take that as an example. We have the uh, the productions of this theater company speaking to the community. You know, there you you can't not see the blackness all over it. You know, when you right. go to their website, but that does not end 
the 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 work you know really making sure that the black run the black led theater companies have the money at least the chance of some money because it's not like it's guaranteed with the way they do grants and all this but at least a chance of it is there and he has an attitude about it he uh he he reminds me a lot of what i'm seeing across the ecosystem and i'm bringing this up because um we, we we have to we have to really look further we have to make sure that our vision is as far as possible especially with the world opening back up these uh arts organizations opening back up with the wear your mask and show your papers all that that's a that's another conversation but even within that you know the the actual programming we can't stop the conversation at oh well they're programming diverse what is this organization doing for the community what sacrifice is this organization willing or not willing to make for the sake of the community? I think we have Paul's answer when it comes to the Ford's Theater. I wonder what these other organizations are going to do to, um, you know, to to answer the call as well, because he alleges in this article that there are a lot of people who are upset or going to be upset by these new changes in funding. But, you know, they, they won't they won't put their name out there just yet. But we'll see. A lot of other people in his position elsewhere, in other in his position, uh, council members on boards and that sort of thing. So of his organizations right. that have large budgets, right? So his argument is that you haven't heard the last of us, but and and I'm sure he's not. right. Got a large budget, <laughs> right? Right. That's the point. Anyway, y'all go uh, y'all go check that out. Shout out to uh, Kwani's Floyd for uh, putting it on my radar. I'm just gonna make sure I didn't have any other um, any other points there. Yeah, I mean. Just remain vigilant. The you know, as we continue to think about moving even beyond and thinking further, we're gonna have to start having the conversation of how the 501c3 status is being weaponized. Like we we, we have we have to really get to being willing to fund individuals, not just folks who have done the paperwork to to maintain that status. But what is it gonna mean for these large funding organizations to give Sally the money to give Gertrude the money to give Ray Ray the money and not somebody who has you know done all of that heavy lifting but I think uh, spreading the money out and redistributing it uh, in a way that benefits the smaller 501c3s is a step in the right direction and I you know I, I have to I have to stand up and, and shout out the you know individual creators and all those folks even those of us with the LLCs because that 501c3 paperwork ain't no joke That's I mean not you know either <laughs> yeah uh, shelter belt was a uh, is a is or was a 501c3 it was yeah yeah yep. uh I'm to be honest with you I don't know where they're at right now so I'm well shout out to them as yeah. well all right well uh before we get into the uh second movement Scott uh, I also wanted to send a rest in peace, rest in power to the now late Sonny Chiba. Yeah. How about you talk about your uh, memories, your the, the, the impact that the late Sonny Chiba had on you? First of all, who is Sonny Chiba for folks who don't recognize his name just from me saying it? Uh, he was in a lot of, uh, I, would, I would call him sort of grindhouse sort of uh, martial arts movies. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know the... Um, how they would churn out a lot of the B style movies really quickly. And he was in uh, a whole series of them that first got on my radar through a Quentin Tarantino film called true romance with Mm -hmm. Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette, where they meet at a Sonny Chiba film festival street fighter. 
uh, Sister Street Fighter and Return of Street Fighter. Okay. And he's in all of those. And so I went and checked them out. And, you know, they're, they're like what you would get on a... Uh, on a snow day, sure. From your TV, you know, yeah. when you were when you were growing up, they they put on something to keep you busy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's Sonny Chiba. For me, and for many more people, you know, shout out to those films. You know, I'm gonna put some respect. Let me give it. Let me get you looking at me crazy. Let me give a sharp to those films. I, I know that Kill Bill <laughs> exists as well. More of us know him through that, and as much okay. as. Um, uh, who directed the movie? I'm I'm blanking right now. You just said his name, Tarantino. Tarantino. Uh, I, I have issues with Tarantino because he loves people to say that n word in in his <laughs> movies. Yeah. I mean, I think Kill Bill might be the only one that doesn't. There isn't a there is not an n word <laughs> in Kill Bill, and I is know that, that right? I know that film very well, so I would know, and I okay. know the other Tarantino films to remember that is an n word in the rest of them. You know, yep. uh, the, all the ones I know. I mean, uh. Even in true romance, because doesn't true romance take place predominantly in Southern California? Yep, they're in between so, Detroit and Southern California. So why y'all using the N word all the way over there in Southern? Anyway, you know, it's not like <laughs> this is taking place in Mississippi or something. No shade, but shade. Um, anyway, I got on a tangent <laughs> yes, there. You oh, did. Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, and a lot of people know Sonny Chiba as Hitori Hanzo yeah. from Kill Bill. Just incredible story. Hey, I've, I've talked good. so much about how. Uh, you know, that scene, you know, those scenes that include Sonny Chiba uh, just, you know, came across me in, in such formative times in my life. You know, we uh, the you can look up all the quotes from those scenes. And there are a couple that I uh, wanted to just quickly share before we get into the second movement. So when he's talking to Uma Thurman's character and, you know, handing her over this sword that he's uh, created for her, he says in Japanese, I'm reading the English, he says, revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. That means a lot to me because as I fight for equity in the many different corners, you know, that I fight for it in, in my work and um, my life week to week, it's easy sometimes to get lost in all of it, especially when it seems like it's so far in the future, it's so out of grasp. It's, 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 it's easy to just start, you know, swinging the proverbial sword, you yeah. know, in, in his, uh, in his speech to, in this ceremony, in his speech to Uma Thurman's character, you know, he also famously says, you know, when he's speaking about the sword, if again, in English, if something along the lines of if on your journey, you meet God, God will be cut. And, I think about that quote a lot because I think about how easy it is for us to hurt people um, who make it all possible for us or help make it all possible. And I know that in my work, especially as I love to, you know, rail on whiteness, (laughs) some of my language sometimes can cut a little sharp and maybe even cut folks that I don't mean it to before we cut on the mics, you know, week to week, there are many weeks where the two of us have had some conversations that, you know, tend to cut in a way that, 
I don't think either of us mean to, certainly that I, I don't mean to. So mm-hmm. anyway, when, when, when I just think about, you know, Sonny Chiba's role in that movie and the importance, you know, of that movie in my life, you know, I always talk about a, a top five, not number five, not number four or five, quite frankly. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, Beatrix, Uma Thurman's character receiving that sword in that ceremony, how I think about that as when I first received my bassoon. I mean, how many fields of work or study can you go into where this thing that one day you get is a vital part of your work. You know, I'm, I love my computers and my, you know, microphones and all that stuff, but that's different than just having this specific thing. So when I think about that movie and, um, you know, music, how, how, uh, how that movie can sort of be in line with a lot of the equity work that musicians do. And then how, uh, Sonny Chiba, you know, through playing Hattori Hanzo just made all of that come to life. I just, you know, uh, think about impact. So, you know, rest in power and rest in peace to the late Sonny Chiba for, you know, playing a small role, but a huge role in so many of our lives. We're going to transition into the second movement with the music that um, is playing when, you know, Hattori Hanzo is offering all of these, you know, just gems of wisdom to Uma Thurman's character. It's called The Lonely Shepherd. And, you know, Without being too dramatic here, as the music is playing, doing this equity work can feel lonely sometimes, especially when everybody else is at work, Mm. when y'all are at your jobs, and I'm sitting here in front of my computer trying to make a difference, make a point for everybody. It can be something. It can feel lonely. I know we're not in it alone, you know, but anyway, here's a little bit of The Lonely Shepherd from the soundtrack to Kill Bill. Pan Pipist, of course, is uh, Georges Zamfir. We were talking a little bit about Georges Zamfir before we uh, started recording as well. You know, uh, at my first radio job at WOT, I was all about, you know, as I am now, just expanding ideas around that phrase classical music. So when I discovered the Pan Pipe CDs, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was. <laughs> so, you know, Georges Zamfir is, a, is a, a composer and a musician who my audience down there knew very well. He, I, I believe he has two Pan Pipe concertos full-fledged concertos in addition to all of the solo stuff and and chamber work so again uh not uh sunny chiba the late sunny chiba not only helping us uh spread our imaginations through um you know the director i i don't have his name on my mind because he loves the n-word so much tarantino. if you would stop with that n-word maybe i could just spit your name out mr tarantino uh you know how sunny chiba could just realize help us spread our imagination through tarantino's vision but how his role you know points us to other artists and and other music you know i don't know how many people can hear that music that we just listened to a little bit of and not think of kill bill and not think about the character hatori hanzo even if they don't know the name of the actor um sunny chiba mm-hmm. Did, have you have you um have you spent much time with george zamfir or uh or pan pipe music it seems like a deep dive huh? it, it is a little bit of a deep corner. dive but 
uh, I think that I must have it must have been about 1995 that I picked up a CD of folk music from the Andes Mm -hmm. and those sort of uh, flutes and pipes were used a lot yeah and it certainly creates that far off aesthetic you know that this story is happening in some way far from you land you know that it really sets it apart in a magic sort of way yeah and I look at now that you you bring it up, I look at Zamfir in a lot of ways, sort of like Maestro Morgan. It, just because you don't hear his name doesn't mean that he wasn't out there working and having an impact. Right. You know, so while your listeners down there at WUOT were digging him, whenever I put him on, people got mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, he didn't get much respect in Omaha. Well, what did Michael Morgan say? Everybody isn't going to like everything. So you have to tell those people, just hold your fucking horses. I'll put some Mozart in it. in a minute. Yeah. That's usually what I said. Except for me, I wasn't finna put no Mozart on. So You know, the one thing... <laughs> yeah. What, the one thing is what? What were, you, what were you about to say? No, we covered it. Okay. And there's no reason to backtrack now. Okay. Hey, y'all, I could really li- listen. I could, I, could, I could talk for a long time about Kill Bill. You already, so, don't, so don't get me started. You, you know? already said that this was going to be a short one. We're doing our best. And That's uh, why I covered the Look, don't look over here at the screen, okay? I'm looking at it. <laughs> All right, we're in the second movement where we are uh, taking the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been repeating over and over through the week and take this opportunity to set, take the second ending to talk about it a little bit. So, uh, Scott, as you know, uh, as a lot of folks uh, who know me know, something that Dell and I love to do is to sit in front of the computer watching YouTube, what they call the memes, but just little, you know, 10, uh, 7 to 10 second clips clips of just little silly things looped back to back to uh, make you laugh. Well, I already uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how doing that got me to the Yevon Polka, you know, the the, the vocal and drums we listened to. Well, um, over the over this past week, I found a, uh, a compilation that introduced me to this man named Zhang Akin, Singing really beautifully. Let's take a listen here. I love that. I love that. And he's, uh, you know, he's, you, you have to understand the lyrics of the song he's singing to sort of get the joke. He's out in the middle of the snow. People meme that video uh, differently, but the fluidity of the singing is really what attracted me. It's, it seems like so much in, uh, especially in Western singing, even when you want to get into opera notes are very specific. You know, a note is not an area. It's a, it's a location. Right. And, you know, we'll be talking about Western tuning and all of that, but in his singing, I heard this fluidity. So I just was listening to <laughs> this little clip over and over and over again that, um, that, that I first discovered on this compilation. And I, you know, through some research, I finally found, found the name of the actual tune so it's called yi jian mei it's a uh, this love song that talks about of uh, the snow blowing in from the north and you know you know just this very poetic uh piece of music that i was really glad to find so i wanted to share just um a little bit of this for my second ending this week <laughs> Sans 
时候，万丈阳光照耀你我。You're not about to tell me this man ain't singing, Scott. Oh my goodness! Just as you know, just as brother, as as he's going through this, just a couple of these、uh, translated lyrics. True love is like the wild field. Wind and rain cannot create barriers. The cloud will break, and the sun will shine. On who? On you, you and, me. and me. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Do you hear what I mean by fluidity? Fluidity. Every note touches not only every other note, but every other part. Of the in between, you know, we cheersed over dinner about the space between, right?、Mm-hmm. I just hear every the, the the best way for me to describe it is just to to do my hand like this, just the very slurred, the very connected way of singing that I don't think we hear, you know, every day. And、uh, you know, I wouldn't have gotten there if it weren't for a, a little <laughs> internet meme. For the sake of you know、uh, talking about classical Western classical programming, I often find that a lot of people. Um, talk about the challenge. At least I certainly、uh, would face the challenge of programming toward East Asian holidays or just general aesthetics. We can, you know, we can we can talk a lot about you know music to celebrate Bastille Day or、sure. music to celebrate the Fourth of July. But when it comes to let's say the Lunar New Year, it's not the easiest thing for a lot of people to just spit out three to four hours worth of music to celebrate the Lunar New Year as、mm-hmm. it applies to、um, East Asian culture. Music. So, in addition to finding、um, the、uh, the original or the famous recording、uh, of that tune, I did also find、um, a little bit of a, a piano arrangement as performed by someone on YouTube named B. Rayi. So, I just want to just share a little bit of this beauty as well. Completely unoffensive, totally appropriate for whatever you want to put together. But again, the thing that I think is just kind of missing from it is the fluidity of the melody. You can't quite do on the piano what uh, both uh, uh, <laughs> what's his name? I wrote it down here, Zhang Akin, and then、uh, the 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 guy who famously、uh, sings the,、um, the the recorded version, Fei Yuching. You can't get that fluidity on the piano. But even so. Taking a taking a listen and and taking the time to program a piano transcription of what to me is a very obscure song. I'm sure there are literally millions of people、mm-hmm. over there in China who can sing every word to this. But you know, I I just I think about those connections. What could it mean for the person like me who just loves to look at the internet memes to happen to turn on the classical station and to hear this tune that we can connect to our own experiences? I think when we think about programming for the future, programming for new. Audiences, we have to dig into 
these really specific nuances of culture and experience and, and really just find very it. specific nuance absolutely very specific but but you, the, but but think but think about what could be possible if you know that is the center of how we think about programming and not just you know the the special thing here or there that's that's my point i get it yeah yeah you talk about the fluidity for me it uh, I, I would go back to the description of classical music having corners yeah that it needs to be just Western so anyway yeah. that it needs to be just so and what he is doing how you describe it as fluidity is something more associated with what you might hear in pop music then or you know on or in r&b what or classical music that is beyond our western ignorant definitions of it or that that was coming <laughs> all right that's that's my second ending for this week what you got what you want to talk about uh i canceled my spotify and i've been listening to oh you canceled music. your spotify i did oh my goodness i did <laughs> and uh why did you cancel your spotify because i didn't like the rates that people were getting for their music yeah. i understood that they were not getting paid uh, artists were not getting paid properly yeah um, and I felt like I could put my money elsewhere. Sure. Uh, there was a couple other things, the logarithms and or, or algorithm, the algorithms, the yeah. algorithms that they, you know, I, I was just looking for something uh, that would expand the randomness a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were talking about during that TED Talk uh, conversation about the need for community. I was, uh, I've been feeling that, you mm -hmm. know, because last week I was listening to the prodigy and going around oh, yeah. the world, going around the lake going, somebody try me, somebody, <laughs> somebody look at me sideways. Yeah. You know, I was ready to go. You say fi so, the fire inside for real. I was, I was ready to go. And so, uh, I finally got a brew session in, I made some beer and, uh, I went to YouTube and was listening to some classical guitar. Mm -hmm. And that is something for me to to get into because as I listen to the musician play, I can understand what uh, th what they're doing with their hands better than sure. on a piano or violin or anything. So yeah. I can identify uh, a little bit better. And I came across a new recording with uh, David Russell by accident. It was a video, a one-hour-long documentary that was filmed in some... Spanish church, you mm -hmm. know, from like the 12th century or sure. something ridiculous like that, you know, beautiful and wonderful sound too. And all of a sudden this melody came across that I recognized called Quen a Virgin Ben Sevira, which is this old Spanish tune. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it, it might even be, you know, pre Spanish language, sure. something, something before that. Yeah. And I remembered that I played it on Christmas day when I was at KVNO and it's and it's about it's a song in praise to the Virgin Mary. Yeah. And so I'm playing it on Christmas Day. It's early on. It has sort of that cathedral reverb going on, and I was really enjoying it, you yeah. know, and thinking about all these blessings of the Virgin Mary. And people got pissed that I wasn't playing "Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow" or or "White Christmas" or whatever. You have to be some kind of motherfucker to <laughs> boo the Virgin Mary I'm herself. Yeah. And on I, Christmas. And I tried to Damn. pull out the hey, you know, all right, look. You know, uh, we three ships is coming up. We're gonna do. I mean, fine, yeah, Frosty the Snowman. Here y'all right. go. We, we're we're gonna have King Wenceslas is here with figgy pudding and all this. Yeah. You know, it's all coming up, and he's it like, is, "No, it's too late." People are something I, else. Re, it's too late over this. 
but play a little bit of this melody here and uh, you know we're gonna start with David doing a, a really nice job with the harmonic section here but when it kicks back up into it man the guy the skill this guy has with his right hand Imagine like a like an Ariana Saval singing, you know, in some Renaissance fashion, you know, over this uh, this lute music with church reverb, natural church reverb going yeah, on. Yeah, what I'm oh, impressed by. People off. I mean, the the harmonics are are one thing, but all of those European uh, ornaments, you know, what we yep. call ornaments, those little flips and mordants and all that, that can't be easy to do. Um, it's not easy to do on any instrument, but I respect, you know, with the little guitar skills I have, and I've been, you know, uh, trying to get to work on my little guitar lately, uh, you know, the skill it takes to really make those things sound and yeah, mm -hmm. just, just a, a wide, broad world of music. Shout out to David Russell. You know, uh, when it comes to, uh, David Russell, you know, just as a, as a musician, is there, uh, anywhere else where, where you would, uh, point folks? I know classical guitar for me is one of those corners of Western classical music that, you know, I always haven't uh, been so familiar with. So, sure. And so always, you know, I hadn't always really platformed it as well as I could. I mean, for, you know, for ignorant folks like me, what else is David Russell out here doing on classical guitar? Well, he is a Scottish uh, guitarist who, uh, like a, a lot of folks who play guitar, fell in love with the music of Spain. Mm -hmm. And so that's yeah. where a lot of his focus is. If you go and listen to his Recuerdos de la Alhambra, uh, another great example of his technique there. Uh, if you, excuse me, if you are a guitarist, I would point you over to his actual website where he has a whole uh, blog section of just uh, uh, tips and techniques, like even all the way down to how to take care of your nails when you're getting ready for a recital. He would practice. Oh, not a manicure. He would, no, no, no. He would, <laughs> he would practice. He would practice with packing tape over his nails so that he didn't split or chip anything before he would go and play. Just little things like that that, you know, it's, it's really cool that he's sharing, you know, the secret sauce behind his, his technique. Well, well, shout out to David Russell. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to, um, so some more of his stuff just as a as a means of inspiring because I feel like playing classical guitar, uh, Western classical guitar also has a lot to do with having the ear for the specific sound. You know, when I talk about again the fluidity in that tune that I brought in, I feel like with guitar you have to pay more attention to the action of the notes to even create something close to that fluidity. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm -hmm. it sounds like David Russell does a really phenomenal job of doing that there. Yeah, shout out to all of the um guitarists that is uh, you heard quen a virgin ben severa from cantigas de santiago that is a new piece uh, by stephen goss out available now and also just go over to youtube and uh and type in david russell and you'll get a link to that documentary that i referenced i was actually thinking about 
uh, guitarist a little bit last week. So in my work, uh, part of my work with the American Composers Forum, when I uh, run the equity committee meetings of the board, I often, you know, start with some short presentation on, you know, something for us to pay attention to when it comes to equity in the arts. So of course, for February, I'll, you know, talk about black musicians, women musicians in March and all that sort of thing. So well, for August, um, I won't spend long here. Sorry, y'all. But for August, uh, August 13th is Left Handers Appreciation Day. So when I thought about how that translates over into music, I instantly went to the guitar and learned mm. that, you know, Paul McCartney was uh, left handed and yeah. uh, Jimi Hendrix. I, I, I made a point to shout out and spend a, a few minutes uh, in the presentation talking about Molly Mayer because she's the first person who you put me on to that really introduced the idea to me of left-handedness mattering in music because yeah. if you play the bassoon the piano whatever it's, it's not all that important as long as you have both your hands yeah. but um I, I even took the uh, time i won't do it now but <laughs> for the presentation i grabbed one of my ukuleles and just played something normal you know just a, a, a little tune and then flipped the ukulele around you know to show how different it is and yeah. it took me about 20 30 minutes but i i kind of could piece it together play it at left hand <laughs> a lot of people can't get there <laughs> but but that's you know so shout out to all of the left-handers as well that's something that we can't really look over. My dad is left-handed, and he talks about when he was in school, uh, they would try to make him right-handed. Like, they considered it a learning disability yep. or, or something back in those days. Yeah, so, get you smacked. Yeah, so it's you know it's, it's something with, with history there to honor and talk about anyway. So shout-out to the guitars, and especially shout-out to all of the uh, left-handers. They say Southpaw. Southpaw. Is that what some people yeah. say? All right, well, um, today's guest is Dr. Antonio Kyler. Dr. Antonio Kyler has been doing some really incredible work in DEI across uh, music spaces. He's the author of the book, Access, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Cultural Organizations, Insights from the Careers of Executive Opera Managers of Color in the United States. In addition to uh, being an author, Dr. Antonio Kyler is a consultant. He has a business that helps arts organizations get their shit together. Like, mm. you know, more of these folks need uh, that training. Uh, Dr. Antonio Kyler is in academia. He's uh, down at uh, Florida State University, and uh, he has uh, joined us uh, here today. And I, I can't wait to uh, share uh, this conversation. Where we start, um, I asked Dr. Kyler about his entry into arts administration. You know, uh, we all have stories about, you know, learning to play an instrument and falling in love and X, Y, and Z. Well, uh, not that we, we don't spend a whole bunch of time talking about folks who landed specifically into the arts administration, folks who are really changing the, the, you know, the guts, some of the bones of these mm -hmm. institutions away from the stage. So we, uh, we start there later on in the conversation. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, uh, what, what some of his future plans and goals are, especially when it comes to uh, living an artistic life on your own terms, you know, not really being caged in by anything. And he talks about how he hopes to uh, learn to play the cello one day. So to transition into the third movement, I thought I would uh, share a little bit of uh, cello music. Again, we're still celebrating uh, the life and achievements of maestro Michael Morgan. So we're going to listen to um, an excerpt from the 2019 
Sphinx competition. This is the year before uh, we went uh, together. Uh, Maestro Michael Morgan is conducting uh, the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra with cello soloist Lara Andrade in uh, an excerpt from the Schumann Cello Concerto, Schumann Cello Concerto in A minor. So here's a little bit of that as we transition into my conversation with Dr. Antonio Kyler. you know I got to this point I was talking to my voice professor and she was like you know have you ever thought about you know arts administration and I was like what's that and then on the inside I'm saying why did you wait to my senior year to tell mm-hmm. me about this but anyways thank you for telling me <laughs> I'm going to go explore this arts administration thing and the reason she suggested it was because she said I've never had a student manage their senior recital so well that the only thing that I had to do was coach you on your music. Mm. And and when I think back on it, I was like, I did do like, I had to have um, one of the composition students um, change the keys to some of the songs that I sang. I had to have that same person orchestrate um, some handle that I sang. And I know I did, at the time- yeah, That's, a, that's another conversation, him. yeah. <laughs> right, because right, at the time I did not know that he invested in the transatlantic slave trade. And so, yeah, I can't listen to handle the way that I used to listen to handle because like, and I, and, and, and I was a really good interpreter of his music. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of black singers because of the way that we grew up singing gospel in the church, we, we have this facilita- uh, facility for color tour. Even think about Whitney Houston, even when Whitney Houston, and she did not lose her voice. Yep. My theory is she lost her breathing capacity because of the smoking. Mm-hmm. That's um, interesting. And so, but even then, she still had her coloratura. She would throw a run up in there and it would be clean as a whistle. So um, Handel's music and Baroque music in general, I think, is um, well-suited for Black singers who have an interest in early music. Yeah. And, and so um, I had to do all those things to get the senior recital prepared, managing rehearsals, managing. I had a, a trio, a string trio that played with me on the first four arias. They were all from the Baroque period because I was, I'm telling you, dude, I was really good at Baroque. Uh-huh. It sounds I, like I was it. so good at Baroque that my voice teacher would send her students to me to coach them on how to do like ornaments in the decapo of sure, arias. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, Psh, the improvisation, <laughs> I was all from gospel. And so I, you know, taking her up on that advice, I went and explored arts administration very quickly. Like the, she told me this probably like a week before graduation from undergrad, I applied like that. For, she told me that on a Wednesday, that Friday, I applied to get an FSU's graduate program in arts administration. I got an interview to, inter, uh, or emailed an interview with them that the following Wednesday. And then that Saturday after that Wednesday, I was graduating. Wow. And I just, because I was like, I wasn't sure what was next. And um, arts administration turned out to be such a, a good choice for me. And 
um, because there were so many wonderful singers who I think were better than me, like artistically, like in terms of their technique, they just had a better, you know, um, better facility instrument. With sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, my, my, my instrument was kind of strange. It was not necessarily a baritone, but it wasn't a bass either. I was like somewhere in the middle of baritone and bass and I could sing coloratura and it was dark and it was warm and it was all of these things that, you know, the traditional classical music folks had a hard time trying to figure out where I should go. But I do remember my freshman year singing for this Broadway producer and him telling me, why are you pursuing opera? Mm. And I was being hard headed. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to sing. Let me tell you, when I when I learned about Leontine Price and Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle and Beverly Seals and sure. Maria Collis, I was like, oh, my gosh, these are my people. Mm-hmm. And so um, he said, you know, your your voice is well suited to Broadway. And he was like, you have this Broadway look like, why are you? Why are you? And so in retrospect, had I pursued taking that track and I had gone to school with people like Quentin Darrington and, um, you know, um, oh, God, I can't rem- I can see his Roderick Covington. You know, these are guys who uh, and I, I know Michael Kilgore. These are like these are people that, you know, really are kind of like Broadway singers. And I'm like, you're trying to put me into category. With them? <laughs> I think not. I, yeah. You know, like, you know, so um, so I made that choice to go into arts administration with the intent to become an artistic administrator of an opera company. And I wasn't ready for the things that I would learn in that space, too, that like um, by the time I got there, I hadn't seen a lot of black, indigenous or people of color managing opera companies at mm-hmm. the executive level, which is why I wrote the book, um, which is based on my dissertation. Um, and 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 that's what got me to this place. I don't regret it at all. Um, I am not a frustrated singer. I do not regret it at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because I, what it did was it gave me, and this these this is one of my um, my um, professors from undergrad said this that you have one of the most encyclopedic uh, knowledges of opera and voice that I've ever seen in a student. Uh, even when I signed up to take opera lit, my voice professor said, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, As a senior, she said, you could teach the class. Why are you taking it? And I said, Mrs. Rich, because I don't know everything there is to know about opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't regret anything that happened. I do wish she could have said arts administration just a little bit earlier. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> because then I could have like, the internships that I could have had during the summer to prepare me along my path, it would have it would have made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when you talk about uh, being tired of trying to fit into this box and the whole um, issues with the Fosh system and and how that relates to contemporary voices, that's a that's a completely different conversation. But, you know, when you when you talk about tired of fitting in, I'm also thinking about fitting in culturally into some of these spaces. And I know that, um, you know, the the phrase DEI is, is pretty common these days in arts administration spaces, but you add the word access. Some A lot of people add many different things, but access is an important part of that for you. I wonder if, if you can speak to the issues of providing access to spaces in which folks still can't be themselves or have to fit into a um, a, a, a square you know a square uh, peg into a round hole that sort of thing where does the conversation of access meet the conversation of change of culture 
to the spaces that you're trying to provide access to. Um, absolutely. That's, you know, so um, the access piece became very important to me because I kept thinking about the process that was suggested in the way that folks arranged the letters. And I, just this week, I heard of JEDI, right? Justice, right, yeah. diversity and inclusion. So, you know, arts and culture people get real cute and creative. <laughs> um, and, and I just, you know, sometimes I think they mistake that for the work and that's not the work, right? Uh-huh. Like, um, you, you got to have, there. It, it's deeper than that. And uh, so for me, it has to start with access because... You, where are you going to get diversity from when people still have historic barriers to participation? Mm-hmm. And for me, I define access. And, um, you know, this is I've written about this before. Um, I, I'm writing about it in the next uh, book that I'll do. Uh, I define it as the removal of all barriers to participation. And some of these barriers can be things like Time, for example, a National Endowment for the Arts study in 2015 found that over 30% of people said that the reason why they don't participate in arts and culture is because they don't have time. And how do you compete with that? Like, if someone is convinced that they don't have time and what they're doing with their time when they get off of work is they're turning on Netflix and experiencing arts and culture there, how are you going to compete with that? And so um, for me, it has to start with access and depending on which group, which historic a historically marginalized and oppressed group you belong to, access might not be where we as the cultural sector have to start. So for example, if you're talking about women and LGBTQ plus folks, they are overrepresented in the arts and cultural sector, specifically in the arts management workforce, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, 70% or more identify as women and like 15% identifies LGBTQ. And so in comparison to the national statistics, um, women and LGBTQ folks are, are, are overrepresented. So access and diversity aren't really necessarily the problems unless you're talking about very specific things like why are there not more female conductors sure. for major orchestras or why, um, you know, why for so long um, did the classical music world insist on um, folks not sharing their sexual orientation? Although I don't, I, that's a private choice, right? Like you can share or not share. But um, for those groups, you know, the issue lies more in equity and inclusion. Now, on the other end, when we're talking about people of the global majority and people with disabilities, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are a whole lot of access issues there. A lack of Black, Indigenous, or people of color, a lack of LGBTQ plus people, um, you know, in major, major positions, um, a lack of people from lower socioeconomic status. That's when we're talking about, and we're looking at it from a quantitative standpoint, right. and we're looking at the numbers. If you see a lack of, that is the suggestion of an access issue. Yeah, yeah. And you cannot get to diversity, equity, and inclusion without access first. And so I, I find in these um, acronyms and these, you know, nice ways of thinking about this work creatively that the process is still muddied by creativity. I appreciate the creative creativity, but where do you actually begin? And so um, in my upcoming book, um, I have... So for me, I have this this way of thinking about it, and I call it EPEE, which is you have to envision where you're trying to go and plan for what you're envisioning. 
execute the plan and then evaluate the plan and then start all over again until you get where you want to go. And, and, and President Johnson in his um, plan for a great society was on the right track with affirmative action, which unfortunately um, the radical right has completely undermined and subverted due to the fact that Black people, when affirmative action was um, implemented, Black people actually started making gains in yep. terms of educational access and all these things. And so um, there was a, a pendulum swing and a backlash against Black people getting ahead, like people getting more closer to equity. I mean, we saw that Actually, in Reconstruction right. Era America as yeah. well. Yeah, right. And it wasn't, so because Black people were getting closer to equality, because it wasn't equity, it was equality, there were some white folks, and I'm not saying all white folks, but too many white folks were unpleased about that. Yep. Yep. When we when we talk about, you know, access's relationship to time, you know, people not having time. We also can't deny that money is in that conversation as well. You know, I wonder what your thoughts are considering the current financial structures when we're talking about funding, when we're talking about the big institutions. Is this the means toward these more accessible arts spaces? It seems to me that these financial structures have to change along with all of the other changes. Absolutely. And that's why Mackenzie Scott's um, philanthropy has been transformatively disruptive to the philanthropic system. Yep. Because she's, she's proving that you can give and get out of the way. You can give unrestrictedly and get out of the way so that people that are on the ground doing the work and doing the work well can do the work. And so, yes. Um, and I also noticed that over probably like the last five or so years that the positioning of very key people like Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation and Maureen Knighton at the Doris Duke Foundation and um, Elizabeth Alexander at the Mellon Foundation and um, Liz Alsina at the Walton Family Foundation um, is shifting and changing the ways in which people can, first of all, decolonize their imagination. Yep, their mind, yes, yes. <laughs> and think about new ways to use philanthropy to create good trouble. And so what we need is more funders incentivizing those cultural organizations who are dependent upon this funding. Because we know, for example, opera, like to me, opera shouldn't be trying to exclude anybody. Mm -hmm. Because... Not only has the Census Bureau told us that the diversity of the United States' population is changing, which means that the majority of the country would not look like the white patrons, donors, audience members that you have become reliant on, mm -hmm. and who in some ways, some of them have held you hostage to their ideas, the stasis of their ideas, and the stasis of their conservatism. But if opera in and of itself, if symphonic music in and of itself, if ballet does not change, then those folks are the ones that we can point to and say, this is why the art form died. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it will die, though, because I think that um, those of us who are not white and care about the work, we are committed to seeing the art form live on because we understand the power of the art form. Mm -hmm. we, we understand what it can do for us as human beings, connecting, up, connecting us with the idea of what it means to be human um, and helping us to access that, the compassion, the empathy, the humanity. And so, um, but 
And I hate to instrumentalize ADEI in this way, but research has shown that some white people cannot get with ADEI unless they can see it being um, to some purpose, right? right? And so if you have gaps in your contributed or earned income as a ballet company, as an opera company, as a symphony orchestra, if you have gaps, guess what? Those gaps can be filled by people of the global majority. Yeah. My challenge, though, is we have cities like Atlanta, cities like Washington, D.C., Memphis, where I'm from, where we have majority black populations, not even just majority BIPOC, majority black. But because of the lay of the financial land, the institutions in these cities are still fine because, you know, the the money is within, you know, X small percentage of the folks and that X uh, percentage of the folks support these institutions. I mean, it it seems like the 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 redistribution of wealth that conversation has to be a part of this because i imagine a lot of these institutions would continue uh continue to survive without any adei work because of the way the money meets the communities but for how long sure sure that's the thing like I, i'm not playing for the short-term goal and you're right there has to have there has to be this conversation about the redistribution of wealth but at the same time I'm at a point now where if I take money out of the conversation, because, you know, money is a tool of the master. And Audre Lorde has already told us the master's tool would not <laughs> dismantle the master's right, house. Right. So if money is not going to help us get, get, get there, what else do we have as human beings to, to create the changes that we want? Yeah. We have cultural capital. We have intellectual capital. We have political capital. We have social capital. We have community capital. So there, there are at least um, five other ways that we can go about this that don't necessarily have to rely on money. Mm-hmm. Now, that does not mean that if you are one of those major arts institutions existing in a majority Black city and your audience is not reflective of the majority Black community in which you exist, that is a problem. Yeah. And, and to me, that is suggesting that you are undeserving of c- cultural public funding because that majority Black group of folks, their taxes are supplying you with the dollars to be able to do what you're doing. Right. Right. And I'm, 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 I'm almost, uh, and I've been thinking about this. Maybe I'll write an article about this one day. Um, but I think all public cultural funding should be um, earmarked for ADEI only because it's a reinvestment in connecting with the community, communities of commun- the communities within the community, right? Yeah. Like, um, and, and you can create a market stra- marketing strategy that's targeting um, Black people to try to get Black people to come in, or you can create a marketing strategy that's targeting LGBTQ folks or people with disabilities or, you know, whatever you're missing from your audiences to more accurately reflect the community in which you exist. And so to me, and I know that, you know, some of those white um, um, contemporary composers back in the 90s were totally anti, you know, being forced to deal with multiculturalism is what they called it back yeah, then. Yeah, we know those stories. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, some of these folks, you know, like, um, I, I can't even think of his name right now. There was one, um, white male composer who just, you know, really threw a tantrum about having to think about multiculturalism in the 90s, right? Like, 
this is a conversation that's been happening for uh, 30, 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And in some parts of our, our country, there are some communities that still haven't figured out cultural equity. Yeah. And why, and why is it that an organization that is um, seeking to preserve the tradition and performance practices around Negro spirituals is just as worthy of serious funding as the symphony orchestra right, or right. the opera or, or, or the ballet. And I often argue they're more deserving considering the Americanness and the unique Americanness of that classical music. You know, uh, you know, you I, I like the phrase cultural equity, and I think we've uh, seen some of that cultural equity manifest, particularly in education. It's nothing to go to an elementary school uh, music classroom and hear things that were very different than when we were in our ORF classes or whatever, but. I don't think that we've seen exactly the same thing for, you know, young and emerging artists. You know, again, when we get back to that word access, access to the art form has really been created in a lar- on a large scale. But access to the profession, access to the opportunities, it's not quite the same. I wonder what you think um, the profession, you know, the industry is getting wrong in that regard. The schools have figured it out, but the opera houses and the symphony orchestras haven't seen to. Well, I think what the cultural organizations are getting wrong about it is that they misunderstand or miscalculate the importance of arts education and their their participation in it. Um, if there is no arts education, there is no audience for the, of the future, right? And 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 I and I want to be very care, careful about um, I'm talking about arts education because. Um, I advocate for holistic arts education that is anti-adultism, where we are projecting onto children what children can and cannot do, Mm. when children should be able to teach us what they can and cannot do, right? And so I advocate for arts education that creates entry points, multiple entry points for students to participate in all aspects of what it means to be a part of this sector. So in my mind, when I'm thinking about an ideal opera outreach program, and I hate the word um, outreach, so I'll say opera education program, um, I'm seeing children choosing roles that they want to play as either singers or as composers of the opera, makeup, hair, um, administrators and managers, board members, funders. So really dismantling and deconstructing the industry and teaching children about different aspects of the industry, giving them different roles to play and kind of setting it up as a a simulation and asking them to think as creatively as is possible about the ways that they can function in these particular roles. Not only is it helping them prepare for the roles in which they will hopefully feel as uh, participants in arts education or, or opera or whatever art form it is, but I think it also gives us the opportunity as adults to be taught what they know and what they can do. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, when I think about, again, you, you use the word education instead of outreach, and I, I like that as well. When I find myself just, you know, in my neighborhood, walking down the street, going here, going there, you know, educating, talking with people who ask me what I do for a living about what I do for a living. It seems so 
unimportant when you sit it next to some of these everyday struggles. You know, I, I live near uh, folks with, you know, six, seven kids and they trying to and, you know, haven't worked in over a year and trying to continually figure all that out. I wonder what you think our work is, you know, black folk, people of color, when it comes for advocating for these spaces, considering the real life struggles we have. We already spoke to income uh, disparity, wealth, dis you know, disparity, all that sort of thing. How can we even begin to advocate for these spaces, considering the vast amount of work that we still need to do in them? You're absolutely right. I, I, and I see that as a multi-pronged uh, opportunity. I, I won't say it's a problem. It's an opportunity. Because on the one hand, we have lived stories that have not been told. And, I, and I'm not saying that, you know, like, we have to offer up our stories as trauma porn, right, or the white gaze. But we live very different lives than white people, even as middle class, black people, sure. we live different lives than middle class white people. Um, and this it's not necessary. like part of it is cultural, but then also it's because, you know, we're 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 different. We um we're the same, but we're also different. We're both. And and so I think that um how do we use those story stories to give people access to this work? And also because I believe that, um, I believe in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, he said that, you know, at the kind of like base level human need is, you know, shelter mm -hmm. and then, you know, shelter, food and water. And then it, as the pyramid continues up at the, the top, um, people's needs change. But um, um, to be able to transcend is at the very top. And so what if we could help those folks who are, because, one thing that I know from my personal experience observing Black people is that we can, we know how to appreciate arts and culture. Like I was watching, I, I don't really watch a lot of social media or YouTube and somehow stumbled upon Black people responding to um, Luciano Pavarotti singing Nessendorma. Mm -hmm. They had never heard of him, not to like, and so we know how to appreciate arts and culture. And and even like my mom, I was like, the last time I was home, I was watching her um, groove to this BBSCC whining song, um, I'm Lost Without You and going, wow, like, you know, so this is ingrained in us. And how do we, I think the way that we we can do this is by, first of all, helping us to see that the lives that we live are worthy of being told and crystallized and documented through arts and culture. Yeah. Whether it be through music, dance, film, theater, literature, whatever it is. And, 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 and I believe in arts education, cradle to the grave. Uh, so many of, you know, black middle-aged folks did not have access to arts education. And, and so uh, we need work that allows for that to happen where someone, this is creative justice, right? This is creative justice to be able to say like, you know, I've always wondered what it would be like um, if I were a filmmaker or I always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm -hmm. And to give people the opportunity to do that and to do it through the lens of their own lived experience. I think it, it, and so it connects them to their own humanity in a particular kind of way that I think also 
kind of gives a shot in the arm of resilience to continue fighting the struggle one more day. Yeah, yeah. I think the the significance of centering the story is so important and has proven to be uh, a bridge between things that black folks you know, whether it's through perception or fact, may not necessarily be interested in as an aggregate versus what they can get into. I'm thinking about um, veganism. I never would have thought it's, it would be so many black folks talking about being a vegan, but you have restaurants out there like Slutty Vegan, black-owned restaurants, and you can't even get in there, you know, because the line is out the door. I'm thinking about, you know, you, you mentioned the 90s. I'm thinking back to watching the tapes of the Tyler Perry plays, you know, and all the black folks in there and, you know, all that sort of thing. So we we can appreciate art. Our communities can appreciate the arts. But I often, you know, critique the aesthetic. You know, the aesthetic is is not being provided. You know, we can put uh, an all black cast of the Magic Flute on stage. We can do an all black Porgy and Bess. But I'm not sure that you know that that aesthetic actually meets the people i mean do you think it we should go one way or another is it a mix of both should we be trying to get folks to see the all black magic flute or should we be trying to produce the tyler perry opera but you know medea medea sings a high c or whatever they want to call it you know (laughs) i think it's both and um I, i think it's both and because there's still some white folks who are convinced that black people can't sing opera mm. you know even though we know that there is a history of black people singing opera and very right. well um that's very well documented right so i think it's both and and i was thinking you know even like for example the the movie moonlight i mean it was just stunningly oh, yes. beautiful yes and imagine taking that movie and turning it into an opera that would be a lot <laughs> right i mean it would be a lot and and um you know, like his mother, like Chiron's mother, I think would have to be a mezzo soprano. <laughs> oh, you've already um, played out the <laughs> the roles yeah, and yeah. everything. <laughs> so, but but this is the story that it, it's 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 balanced, right? Like it shows the beauty of what it means to be human mm-hmm. as it manifests as a black person, but also the struggles and the challenges. And so I think it's both and it's the the all black cast of Labo Wim set in the Harlem Renaissance um, or but it's also new works that tell new stories like, you know, um, I found out uh, probably 2017 that my Patrick clan African ancestry is Angolan. Right? Oh, wow. So I wanted to know, like, well, who was the Angolan royalty during this time? And I found out about Queen Nzinga. Mm. And I'm like, uh, and there's this story about her, how when the Portuguese came to try to negotiate with her, they did not even offer her a seat. And so the queen commanded one of her servants on their knees to, so she can sit on their back at the table with the Portuguese, wow. right? Wow. There's a story, there is a story there that is very important, right? Like, because it talks about the ancestry, our, our ancestry, and the humanness, the humanity, like, and it also undercuts, um, undermines, subverts this this narrative about us being savages. But it also is telling a story about us that is not riddled in 
uh, colonialism, slavery, and, you know, whippings, and because we know that, yeah. right? Like, I started that underground, you know, Barry Jenkins, he's an alum of FSU, and, and, you know, I try to watch his work, I try to support what, anything he does, because he went to FSU, <laughs> um, but I saw the first episode, and I couldn't do anymore. Like I, I, I'm like, I just, I, my soul, I just did not have the emotional fortitude to do it. And I don't know that I, I, I have it, right? Like, and I was like, wait, like I've read about this and I, I thought we weren't going to do a whole lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so we need more stories and where I feel like when it comes to white supremacy culture, there's been this exhaustion of narratives about white people. In a lot of ways, I feel like Black, Indigenous, and people of color know more about white people than white people know about themselves as a result of it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I was thinking about that movie, The Revenant, and and I, I was so annoyed that I had sat through that at the movie theater when it came out, and I thought, how would this story have been different if it was an Indigenous man as the lead or a Black man as the lead? Like, how would this have gone different? Yeah. Yeah, because it felt like another white saviorist kind of narrative, and um, I think that one of the reasons why some of the movies that are primarily about white stories are not as interesting is because they've run out of things to to to, to really try to um, sell us this lie of white supremacy. And we've created the culture from the very beginning. You know, to to your point of the you know antebellum slave movies, there's one that I love. When we when I when we cut the mics, I'll I'll get into more of that. But but uh, I have one more question for you. But uh, before I ask it, I wonder if you can uh, point folks towards your work. How how can they um, reach out to you for consultation? How can they uh, check out your first book and all of that stuff? Yeah, so um, you can find me uh, at kylerconsulting.com, which is my my new consulting practice that focuses on helping cultural organizations maximize their performance and community relevance through access, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can check me out at um, FSU, where I am, um, you know, associate professor, and you can get access to a lot of my my research there. Um, I also have like you know, um, talks that I've done on the the Kyler Consulting website. You can also reach me at the University of Michigan um, or the Kyler Consulting LLC at gmail.com email. And um, I'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, I'll have all of that linked. So one of the things I love, loved reading from visiting your website, you know, this mission, this phrase, living a creative and expressive life on your own terms. Have you achieved that? What are you still fighting for access to while you continue to fight for access for other folks? Oh, that's such a great question. So as, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I um, started out wanting to be a singer. And actually, I, I really wanted to play the cello. But in fourth grade, when we got to music, I decided that my family could not afford for me to take cello lessons. You decided right? like, that. And that's a yeah, conversation. I did, yeah, you know, exactly. Right. Like, you know, and I grew up in the two-parent household. Mom, dad, dad was a pastor. Um, he had an, a, another full-time job outside of pastoring. My mom, you know, she worked um, a lot of times. Two older brothers, younger sibling, and I was just like, uh. And what I didn't know was that we were poor, or in our financial situation, partially because you know, black. We were black, right? Like the, I later learned that, and so. One of the ways that I, I'm going to seek creative justice when I retire is to go back and take um, cello lessons. 
right? Like I'm saving it for that time because I don't want to be one of those people who retire and be like, ugh, I didn't, I shouldn't have retired, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, so that's one of the things that I'm gonna do. Um, I don't really sing as much, you know. Now it's more like I'll sing if you know a family member dies and they ask me to sing at the funeral, and I'll go home and I'll do that. But I've also gotten into uh, photography. So one of the things that um, uh, creative justice should do is allow you to give yourself permission to explore anything that you want to explore artistically and creatively. And so I, I, you know, I, I love to take pictures. I don't like to be in pictures, right? Like you, you know, like my friends will tell you, like he will find a picture, he will, <laughs> you will not get. And so, uh, but I like to be behind the camera. And I took a picture. Um, actually, I'm gonna see if I can find it while I'm talking. The uh, the last time the moon was full, and um, yeah, I think I I can share it with you. There. So I took a picture with my my cell phone, right? Like, and I don't even know how I did it, right? Like, I don't even know what like filter modes or anything like that I use. But um, so I I what I'm doing is exploring creative justice based on my curiosity about what I think I can do and what I want to do. Um, and so that's one of the things that creative justice should be able to do is to allow people to give themselves permission to explore artistically, creatively, whatever it is that they want. And, you know, um, one of the ways that I think that this could happen is if someone like Mackenzie Scott gave a billion dollars, two billion dollars to support arts education for um, Title I schools. Right. Like. The Title I schools are where the students who are uh, at risk, you know, I don't know what they're at risk for, but, you know, um, can have access to arts education and creative justice to explore the fullness of their curiosity. Um, The thing that I'm doing now through my consulting practice, I'm seeking creative justice for myself through my consulting practice, right? Like I'm I'm using this entrepreneurial um, um, venture to, to, to not only create space for other people, but also for myself. So at, at the point that I decide that, hey, I'm not feeling being a professor anymore, especially at a public university where particular kinds of politicians create barriers to us being able to really engage mm-hmm. with our students and do the work that we know we mm-hmm. can do. I want to walk away from this so that I can go do this and dedicate myself full time to this, right? And you know, one of the things that I, I I'm so grateful to you for is that, um, you know, whether you know it or not, I feel like you were exercising your creative justice um, when you uh, were creating playlists on the radio and pushing back. Sure. Yeah. And 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 the thing is that you should not be punished for exercising your creative justice. So that's another hurdle, right? Like when people are seeking and pursuing actively their creative justice, which is a human right. It is a human right that is um, just to me as as a right as 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 clean air and clean water, right? Creative, creative and artistic pursuits, because these are like things that are innate to us as human beings, and you should not be punished for pursuing your creative justice, and so. I, I was so, when I read your story last year, and I feel so blessed to have been able to connect with you in this way, because I had no idea when I read that story um, that we would be a year later in this conversation, but you inspired me. You compelled me 
And I said, you know what? That dude was exercising his creative justice. It cost him. And I think we have to be very uh, clear about that. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices, right? And, and sometimes, you know, it takes boldness to walk away from a situation that might be comfortable monetarily, but is not comfortable spiritually and creatively. I've loved that musical moment since the first time I heard it watching Django in the theaters. One of the things that uh, Dr. Kyler and I touch on is, you know, the idea of trauma porn and uh, black art represented and manifested being more than just the roots and the 12 years a slave and all that stuff that really portrays our history as oppressive and violent as it was. Um, But I have to always shout out Django as one of those films that I just love. You know, mm-hmm. you you watched it uh, semi uh, recently, mm-hmm. and I think it works because, you know, it, it I, one, one of the big reasons anyway is that it represents not only allyship, but accompliceship mm-hmm. on the part of uh, Dr. Schultz. I forget the actor's yeah. name, but yeah, you, he t- goes all the way to the end, yeah. you know. And Dill said something like, yeah, something happens at the end that really changes your opinion of him. And I'm thinking, don't, don't, not the doc. Not, I, I, here I was thinking that he did something crappy in the end. Yeah, but yeah, no spoilers. But he, but yeah, he he really gave it up. The one, the one thing I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio was a little comfortable saying the N word. I don't, I don't, I, don't I heard know. stories that I heard stories that he was apologizing up and down. Sure, I'm sure he was. Have you ever had to say the N word in a play? No, this is a safe space. No, no, okay, no. <laughs> Uh, One of the other reasons why I can affirm that movie, despite the black slavery of it, is that I forget her name, but Leonardo DiCaprio's sister in the in the movie, you know, the the woman who kind of lived there. She had to go too. she had to go. Was it a Buffy or a Mitzi or something Something like that? that. Kitty. Uh, was it Kitty? What, whatever her name was. We, we love to think about racism as something active, but it can be something inactive as well. And even though she didn't whip nobody, didn't you know do anything that we saw on the, on the film uh, directly violent, she was still a part of it and she had to go as well. So, you know, Jamie Foxx blew that house up anyway. <laughs> Shout out to Tarantino, I guess. Again, we talked about, you know, his, my problems with him. Uh, before we get into this triloquy, the, uh, to, just just to connect, you know, another thing that Dr. Kyler and I uh, were talking about again, the idea um, as he affirms um, through his consultancy, uh, making a way for artistic expression on one's own terms, and I asked what that looks like for him. He told me what he uh, how what he saw. Um, in me that really affirmed that. So I wanted to ask you what for what what is you know living an artistic life, having an artistic expression that's on your own terms. What does that mean for you? Do you think you're there when it comes to you know your artistry of creating music that uh, like you do uh, uh, apart from your work? What does that you know what does that look like for you? Art artistry on your own terms. Artistry on my terms musically is uh, it, it's very awkward. 
Uh, music is not something that comes easy to me. I have to work at it. And a lot of times what I lay down and what I, re what I record and what I write doesn't get saved. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but if you want to go back to theater, that is a much more comfortable space for me to uh, work under my own terms. Uh, for example, I'll go back to uh, 19, uh, not 19, this would have been just before I moved to the Twin Cities in 2005, I wrote a full-length play that um, got mixed reviews because it wasn't what people were expecting from a play. Yeah, It was very dialogue heavy, so you had to pay attention. And there was so many things that were connected to one another by tiny, you'd like your transitions. Well, there were tendrils in this play that were going all throughout it that if you remove one, then well, well shit, you got to take this yeah. one out over here and now you got to change this. So it was, there was an interconnectivity about it that if you were paying attention, there was a big reward, you know, that there was a synergy for you. But if, uh, if you were expecting something more, um, standard theater fair you didn't get it well you know the responsibility well i mean we can talk about a lot there that we won't get into but really trusting the audience and all that sort of thing but uh the the requirement of paying attention and 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 really looking at all of the all of the details also puts a responsibility on the playwright to make sure it's engaging right mm -hmm. you know so it, it it goes both ways and sometimes it's hard to uh think about Art artistic expression on one's own terms while thinking about all these other things, but you know. Sure, I, I guess it's just, it, it's easier for me to do it in uh, the writing slash theater milieu because, you know, my, yep. my skills as a musician aren't there yet. They will right. be. Just they, they will be. Perfect one day. practice makes perfect, as they say. We'll see. As, as people say. All right. <laughs> uh, we're getting into this uh, fourth movement here. We've been, you know, uh, in addition to honoring Michael Morgan, I think uh, music associated with Tarantino films has sort of been the, the B theme. So, mm -hmm. uh, of course, I, I found a, a trill in that category. So this is Bernard Herrmann's Twisted Nerve as featured on uh, Kill Bill Part 1. Let's listen to these trills. <laughs> A little, a little sharp, <laughs> a little sharp there, but Headphones definitely some nice, <laughs> but definitely some nice, nice trills. All right, we're here um, in the uh, fourth movement, so I can, you know, uh, share y'all, share with y'all my true and real for the week. First of all, you know, twisted nerve, the music that goes with that scene in Kill Bill. We have um, California Mountain Snake, yep, uh, uh, her 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 code name, going in to deal with Uma Thurman's character. With what? 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 What is her weapon that that she originally plans to use against Uma Thurman? Do you remember? I don't. In the hospital, a shot, right? She's gonna uh, in oh, inject I the IV. The, I thought you were talking about the trailer. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, any well, anyway, you know what? Well, I'm I'm thinking about that just to you know give a dark. Well, I'm I'm not gonna say a dark shout out, but this is I'm I'm just gonna keep it real. This is called triloquy. Okay, a lot of people are acting like shots. What's in those syringes, these vaccines, are so dangerous and are so deadly 
I've been staying away from the uh, the cable news, but there are a few names that I have learned since the last time we recorded. Uh, one Phil Valentine, another Presley Stutz, and an H. Scott Apley. Okay, one of the things that they all have in common is that they are conservative conspiracy theorists who believe getting the vaccine and wearing masks and all that was a system of control. Another thing that they all have in common now is what? They all died due to COVID. I'm not going to speak ill of the dead. I'm not going to spend time, you know, trying to be cute in that way. But we need to start getting real. They have already talked about uh, boosters suggested after eight months. Mm -hmm. So those of us who are vaccinated fully have things to think about moving forward. We're still out here wearing our masks because we have seen a very small percentage, but enough people for me to see that even the vaccine is getting some people sick and some of them are dying. So if you're not vaccinated at all, or you don't want to wear a mask at all, or you think that the vaccines are something dangerous, you are playing a very, very, very dangerous game. I, uh, every week I'm like, okay, well, we won't have to say nothing about COVID this week. But as the weeks go by, we're seeing that not only is the uh, pandemic really sinking its teeth in, we're seeing people, despite all of that news, continuing to spread ignorance out here. It's pitiful. I, I, I've, I've saved it for several weeks in a row. Maybe we'll bring it up next week. But there was a flutist with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra who was spreading uh, misinformation and it got her fired. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sensitive to what it means to be fired in public and, and the news stories that come from it and all that stuff. But this virus is, is really not playing. It's no longer a pandemic. It's endemic. It is. It's just going to be with us. So <sighs> get used to it, um, to the people who are showing up and causing problems at testing sites. You're going to go and have a, a protest at a testing site? Goodness gracious. Goodness Knock gracious. Knock it off for what is, And then, you know, school is letting back in, and we have folks like the man down in Texas trying to prohibit mask mandates, and he round here testing positive for COVID as well, you see? Right. Now, here's the other thing. The former guy had a rally recently. Okay. And suggested... Oh, you mean 45, okay. And suggested that the vaccine was safe and they should go get it and he got booed so it's just now, too wait, late that, that's what i'm saying <laughs> the monster that has been created is now out of control of the master yeah yeah mm -mm. all right well listen Go get go get the, the the shot if you have not yet. And if you have, I will suggest you continue to wear your mask and to be careful because these folks don't care out here. And they're mm -hmm. and they're uh, we already talked about the fake vaccine cards. If they have confiscated some, that means there are many, many, many more, plenty more in rotation. So oh, remain vigilant, y'all. And please take this thing seriously um, quickly. Well, I, I don't want to talk about this for long, but we've put it off for long enough. OK. The whole Jeopardy debacle, the whole Jeopardy host debacle. We went from um, the Internet rooting for LeVar Burton mm -hmm. and, um, you know, other folks uh, being in the running to the uh, executive producer of the show. His name was Mike Richards to Mike Richards just stepping in, you know, after all of that stuff. And then last week, you know, 
the internet is fast. So they, <laughs> the internet found some stuff that he said on a podcast and, and, you know, put his feet under the fire. And then what's not just one instance, right? Many. And then what surprised me beyond that was that Mike Richards actually stepped down because a lot of times these people just pretend like the internet doesn't exist, pretend like we don't exist and uh, just move on. But I guess it was a little hot in the kitchen for him. What do you think? But, does he still have the executive producer job? Well, that's the thing. I'm going to read here a couple lines here from Newsweek. The headline is calls grow for Mike Richards to step down as Jeopardy executive producer. A number of Jeopardy fans are calling for Mike Richards to step down as executive producer of the game show following his resignation at host. I, again, I'll, I'll let y'all read that because we running late here, but... I think when you uh, are going to just step in and ignore uh, not only calls for, you know, this person we want, but just general movements towards equity, especially in outward facing things, you got to be prepared for what you get. Uh, We were talking about how Alex Trebek actually uh, suggested Laura Coates, who didn't even get an audition, who was a black woman. If you don't know her doing incredible work out here in news and journalism, I think will be a, a, a great person to put in there. But listen. Say what you want. The Internet matters. The people matter. And these large institutions, CBS or whoever, you know, uh, Jeopardy is with, you know, they haven't always had to deal with the masses in this way and not even in contemporary history. I, I think five years ago, even it was a different lay of the land as far as the responsibility that these organizations, these mega organizations have to the backlash of the people because of social media, mm-hmm. because of everyone having a platform. So. You know, my my message to uh, Mike Richards is thoughts and prayers. But, you know, after the things that I've read that you said, I didn't listen to the podcast or anything. But those jokes that you're making about Haitians and other people of color, women. Yeah, you need to go ahead and hang it up. You would have had your little job if you would have stayed in that job and stopped trying to stand in the way of equity. But here you are. So if you're like if you're under 45, <laughs> just count on some of your shit being out there that is searchable yeah 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 all of it just plan on all of it being searchable god i uh, it's gonna happen i mean if it's in your if it's in your past and you're trying to be a uh you're you're trying to get into politics Mm -hmm. if you're trying to uh uh become a a police officer or a sheriff or something like that if you want to host a game show Uh, so here's my question uh mayim bialik is she I haven't read about uh, she, you know, she. She's staying quiet. She's staying out of it, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> and I don't but blame they said her. that she's going to be the sub, yeah, for a little bit while they find the new Mike Richards. Yeah. So is is she is that tainted for her now too? Uh, I'm I'm sure the internet has already done research on her. If, mm. if, if we if they could find it, they'd have, they'd have found it. I, I don't know if I'm gonna watch Jeopardy. I don't I don't know, but I I just bring it up just as a reminder to you know all of the white people in positions of power at these large organizations. The internet is fast. Those of you who have not had to face what Mike Richards has faced, fair warning. If you try to step in when when the people. You know, when we the people want something, it's not that we, you know, we have the position to cancel that out. But it's it's look, I'm not running for president either. OK, because they because <laughs> they're going to find the the picture, the video, the something from all of my years of talking into microphones that is going to get me out of here. Oh, yeah. Or maybe not. We'll see. I was joking. I said, Jonathan, need to keep it up in the vault. There is something I'm thinking of in particular, but. I think he took it off the internet. We'll see. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, as as we wrap up here, look, y'all, uh, 
Free speech is also a responsibility. Mike Richards is talking about, you know, oh, they're, they're trying to cancel it just for saying X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. Look, I get it. But free speech comes with, you know, the, the repercussions of it. On the other side of it, I feel like free speech is a responsibility. We can't take for granted our ability to really blaze a trail with our words. Sometimes, you know, the cost of that is something that we don't want, even if we're trying to do some good, but I still see it as our responsibility. Michael Morgan saw it as his responsibility. He blazed a trail not only with his words and his collaborations and relationships, but his music and the way he programmed. What if we could all be as brave as Maestro Michael Morgan was? I, lo I look up and aspire to be as fearless as he was, not only here on this podcast, but through all of my work. Rest in peace, rest in power to the late, great Maestro Michael Morgan, and we will see y'all next week.